0: Thank you, Nina. Well, our church is gracious to our pastoral staff. One of the benefits that they allow us to have is a sabbatical every five to eight years. And Pastor Jay and Becky left for a sabbatical uh, about a week and a half ago, and uh, they'll be gone uh, for eight weeks plus two weeks of a study break. And they're currently on a study break. Some of us got a, a beautiful text this morning uh, of a picture of them overlooking a lake as the sun was rising, and they were praying for us uh, this morning. It was so it was good to, uh, to see that they're doing well. Uh, they're on their study break right now, which we typically take this time of year. And he uh, spends the time praying, reading, and planning out his sermons uh, for the next calendar year. And uh, we will benefit greatly uh, when they do come back. Um, part of their sabbatical. Originally, they were going to be going overseas, visiting some of our, our, our church missionaries and uh, as well as seeing family and uh, they literally had a global tour uh, planned and they tried to replant it again for uh, 21, but uh, travel restrictions still haven't opened up, at least for international travel, and so their plans change. They're staying stateside, and they're visiting several of our church friends and missionaries uh, throughout uh, the United States, and um, uh, looking forward for them coming back refreshed as well as encouraged as they have a chance to be there. But we are blessed here this morning. Uh, we have two retired pastors that are part of our church fellowship. Uh, Pastor Cal Hebert, we see regularly up front. He's one of our elders. And we're blessed to have uh, Pastor Marty Volz and his wife, Sherry. Uh, M- Pastor Marty and Sherry are very active in our church. This is their church home. Uh, Pastor Marty served in many churches uh, through the years uh, in California as well as the Midwest. And he uh, his last full-time uh, pastoral uh, work was in uh, North Suburban Evangelical Free Church in Deerfield, Illinois, not too far up the road he- from us here. And uh, he has served since then, since retiring, so to speak, Uh, He's been serving actively serving as an interim pastor uh, in several different churches, and we were blessed to have him as our interim pastor uh, several years ago between uh, Pastor Bob and when Pastor Jay was called here, and uh, that's when we got to know and love uh, Pastor Marty, and uh, I am thrilled. He's going to be coming and sharing with us uh, this morning, and uh, we will be seeing him for the next several weeks as he will be opening God's word for us. Will you welcome Pastor Marty as he comes?
1: As I told the folks in the first hour, you can tell that you're getting older as your introductions get longer. (laughs) Almost two years ago, when Sherry and I stepped back from interim pastoral work, we were faced with a question we hadn't been faced with for 50 years. Where would we worship? What would we call our home church? I'm pleased to say that you have been God's answer to that question in our lives. We enjoy so much coming and worshiping with you as Pastor Doug leads in worship from Sunday to Sunday. We feel so much a part of your experience in worship, not just a performance up front, but the heart of God's people seeking you. We love Pastor Jay's faithful proclamation of the word, one of the primary reasons we're here. We're excited every Sunday, looking forward. To what he'll say, I, some Sundays back, I saw Jay after the service and I said, you don't know how excited I am on the way here every Sunday because I know we're going to hear God's word proclaimed. What a joy that is. You have opened your arms to us as a congregation and our ABF, David Carlson and Marvita and the whole class have just been wonderful to embrace us and make us really feel part here. You have been and are God's answer for a home church, thank you so much. And now I have an added privilege, and that is to proclaim the word of God during Jay's absence. And uh, I've been looking forward to that. I must say that before he left, we talked, and he said, "Marty, I've heard a nasty rumor that uh, I uh, you intend to spend the next eight weeks in Exodus 32. Is that true?" I said, "Well, um, that's not true. I only intend to spend the next or six weeks." in Exodus 32. The first week and the eighth week, I'm going to do one-offs, but, but just six weeks in the middle, just six weeks, we're going to look at Exodus 32. I don't think I've ever done that before. I don't think I've ever just camped on one chapter for six weeks. This is a dense passage. There is truth after truth to be explored and applied by believers, New Testament believers, and uh, I'm excited to look at this text with you in the weeks just ahead. This morning, however, I invite you to turn with me to uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, and we're going to think together about lessons to be learned from spiritual failure. Lessons to be Learned from Spiritual Failure. I'm not going to read the passage, it's 72 verses in length. You remember that in Mark 14, one of the longest chapters in the gospel? But we're going to work through it in such a way, you're going to hear me quoting portions of it and referring specifically to verses, so please do keep your Bibles or whatever you use in today uh, open and available to you. There are a few chapters in all scripture that record such a wide range of spiritual failures as does Mark 14. From beginning to end, we see one example after another of Christ's disciples, I mean his inner circle, failing Christ and failing themselves in matters of love, loyalty, kindness, humility, and service. We're only four verses into the chapter when we come face to face with their first spiritual failure. As the twelve are sharing a meal with Jesus at the home of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, Mary is so moved by her adoration for Christ that she stops to anoint Jesus from head to foot with a very expensive perfume. Mark tells us in verse 4 that some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Who were they? Who were they they that were rebuking her? Well, many commentators suggest it was Pharisees who were present on this occasion. John, in his gospel, says specifically it was Judas. Matthew tells us it was the disciples as a group they were having this discussion. What is this woman doing? Doesn't she know this is a poor use of these expensive uh, perfumes? Those of you familiar with this passage will recall that Jesus was quick to rebuke not Mary, but the twelve on two counts. First, he rebuked them for their unkindness to the poor woman who meant only good. He said in our language, in our parlance, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? Second, he rebuked them for their failure to value him appropriately. And he basically says, here's a woman who understands my real worth. You haven't yet fathomed who I am or what my worth is. No doubt, Jesus' words must have stung the twelve more than a little. But not enough to guard them from additional failures of an even greater weightiness. Because by mid-chapter, they are all busy correcting Jesus for foolishly suggesting that they will fall away and desert him in the hours just ahead. In verse 31, we read, Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Now, if you want to jump ahead for just a moment to verse 50 in this same chapter, you can read, then every one of them deserted him and fled just as he had said. But before this event, before the 12 actually deserted him, they would find at least two other opportunities to fail him. In verse 32 and following, we find the 12 with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane where Jesus went to pray before facing the cross. Gethsemane where Jesus three times asked his disciples to, to keep watch and pray with him and twice rebuked them for sleeping through that time rather than praying with him? And still, there was yet another spiritual failure recorded in this chapter. In verse 47, Mark tells us that when the crowds came to take Christ away, Peter drew his sword and attempted to protect Jesus by physical force, to which Jesus responded by censuring Peter's actions. Enough of this, he said. Quit it, Peter. Don't you think I can call on my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal twelve legions of soldiers? But shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? So then Mark 14 and the parallel chapters of the other gospel writers give us a discouraging account of one spiritual failure after another without so much as a single, momentary, shining example of spiritual strength or success on the part of the disciples. And all of this leads us to the first of three observations about spiritual failure. And that is this. Spiritual failure is inevitable. Now, when we say that spiritual failure is inevitable... We don't mean to say that all of us are destined to experience spiritual failure all the time in every situation. We may, on a rare occasion, have a Mark 14 kind of day, when we seem unable to help ourselves, unable to get out of our own way, a day when even our best intentions for Christ go unrealized. But this only goes to prove that spiritual failure is more common than we would like to believe. That spiritual failure is inevitable and even common is clear not only from the events of Mark 14, but from the anecdotal testimony of all Scripture and from the experiences of our own lives. Truth be told, it is a rare day when we don't suffer some form of spiritual failure, whether great or small. But there's more than anecdotal evidence for the inevitability of spiritual failure. The teaching, the theology of Scripture assures us that this is so. To begin with, we know from the Word of God that we are members of a fallen race with a propensity to wander and twist and foolishly seek our own way. True, through faith in Jesus Christ, we've been set free from sin's rule, sin's dominion over our lives. But sin continues to wage war with us, doesn't it? Day and night. And we, for our part, are not always successful in defeating its considerable powers. The Apostle John reminds us of this in the opening words of his epistle, which we heard read this morning already. If we say we have no sin, the truth isn't in us. A second theological proof that spiritual failure is inevitable is cited by Christ himself in our text for today. In verse 37, when Jesus turns to the twelve, returns to them after praying and he finds them sleeping he explains the situation with the following words he says couldn't you keep watch with me for one hour watch and pray so that you do not fall into temptation the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak as a child i was raised in a church where we were taught that spiritual victory could be had by experiencing a second work of god's grace as though God's first work was inadequate. So you needed a second, and if you had the second, then maybe you'd need a third. But we were told that perfection could be had if you had this right experience with God. In the holiness movement, in which I was part, that was called sanctification, or a second work of God's grace. This second form of grace was said to enable us by the Spirit of God and to assure us of constant victory in the Christian life. I was raised in a very Pietistic Christian home. I was sensitive to spiritual things, and at a very early age, I remember going to my pastor and saying, I wanted to have this experience. I wanted to live a perfect life in Christ. And he told me, you're too young. And I thought to myself, I wonder when I'll be old enough. He explained to me that little boys do little boy things. Probably wouldn't work out for me to try to be perfect as a little boy. And then I got into my teen years, and I went back and said, no, but I really want to have this experience. He said, well, it's probably a little early yet. I began to wonder when you could just get this thing. And in my early 20s, I was permitted to pray the prayer and have this experience. Would you be surprised if I told you it didn't make me perfect? Would anybody here be surprised? I know my family wouldn't be surprised. Not for children, not for teenagers, not for, dis- for adults. Earlier this week I was watching television and I saw a young woman describing uh, her journey, her battle with cancer. She had been diagnosed fourth stage, was told there was no cure, but wonderfully, miraculously we might even say, uh, she later came into a remission which lasted for some years. She went to her doctor one day finally and said to him, tell me, tell me I'm cured. Honey, he said, you're in remission. No, she said, tell me I'm cured. Honey, he said, there is no cure for being human. There is no cure for being human. Wise words. What my leaders in my little home church forgot to tell me was that while the regenerate spirit of the believer is willing to do God's bidding at all times, and under all circumstances, the flesh is not. The old man, the flesh which continues to be present with us until Christ returns to glorify us and take us home to the Father, isn't willing to do God's bidding. He isn't regenerate. He refuses to get sanctified or have a second work of grace. He's as nasty and depraved a day as he's ever been. He's as depraved as he was the day Christ redeemed you, and he isn't getting any better. In Jesus' own words, the willingness of his spirit within us is only part of the truth about our spiritual condition. It is also true that we carry around with us the old man, the flesh, who is weak and devious and constantly wars against our souls. Now, before we move on, let me cite yet one more theological reason why spiritual failure is inevitable, and that's because We are not responsible for, nor gifted to, direct our own spiritual growth and maturity. Just as we could not save ourselves, so Paul writes powerfully to the church in Galatia, we cannot sanctify ourselves, perfect ourselves. We cannot take over the work of spiritual progress and growth in our lives. In the words of Jesus, I know that you're willing, but you're weak. Verse 27, you're all going to fall away. Remember the response of the disciples? Remember what they said? They said, no, we won't. As though to say, if we affirm this long enough and loud enough and we promise enough, we'll be okay. We'll be able to do this. We can pull this off. Jesus said, yes, but you will. Peter and all the others emphatically, the text says, said, even if we have to die with you, we'll never disown you. You say, what's your point? Just this. No matter how good our intentions or how emphatic our promises to God to do better, when it comes down to it, we are not sovereign in the matter of our spiritual development. Our good intentions and our plans for godliness are good, but they are not Powerful enough to make us the men and women we need to be, the men and women we long to be. I remember New Year's Eve in Southern California some years ago. I was a new pastor there, and I'd gathered the people in the fellowship hall. And as we were gathered, I had this wonderful idea. By the way, if inspiration ever strikes you in a moment, set it aside probably need some prayer before you do anything well on this particular occasion I didn't think I had time for prayer so I said here's what we're going to do everybody take those slips of paper on the table around you and write down an area of your life an area of your spiritual life where you would like to develop and grow and mature in this coming year and they were ready to do that and they wrote these out and I said now I'm going to collect them and I'm going to put them in this envelope up here. And next year when we meet here around these tables again, you can look at them and we'll see how God has worked in your life. Are you ready for this? A year later we got together and I turned back little envelopes. They took them out and they looked at them. And all over the room there was silence and people looking down in their laps. I started to move among the tables say, what's wrong here? What's wrong? Well, not a whole lot of people are stepping up to say they've really grown in that area. You know, and what do we do now, Pastor. Said, Lord, help me. Said, okay, now here's what I'd like you to do next. Now, I'd like those of you around the table to share with your brothers and sisters where you have seen the work of the Holy Spirit growing them, maturing them during this past year. And all of a sudden, things changed like that. There was laughter. There was enjoyment. People were saying, Susie, I've watched God do this in your life this year, and I'm so blessed you've become such an example to us. And over here, George, you've taken responsibility in your family like you never had before, and we see maturity and growth in your life. And you see, what had happened? What had happened? We don't set the agenda. We don't tell God, this is where I'm going to grow, and you make me grow in that area, and one year later, here's where I'll be. God moves. He knows the timing in our lives. He knows just where we need to go. You say, should never set goals? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that we're not ultimately, sovereignly in control even of our own growth. The Spirit of God is the one who does that work in our lives. But the inevitability of spiritual failure leads us directly to a second and an even more troubling observation about spiritual failure. It's this. Spiritual failure results in its own serious and unique pain. Little is said in our text about the pain experienced by our Lord's disciples following their repeated failures described in this chapter, but it's significant that the closing words in this lengthy chapter are these, and he, Peter, broke down and wept. Nobody needs to convince us That failure in whatever form and in whatever arena in our life can be excruciatingly painful. Especially if that failure is public. Even more so if our failure takes place in the presence of those we love most, the last people we'd want to hurt. This is the primary reason, by the way, that we struggle so hard to avoid failure in our relationships and our studies and our financial endeavors, our careers and every other aspect of life. We hope to avoid the pain of personal disappointment, the pain of hurting others, the pain of showing ourselves to be weak and incapable of living up to our own good promises. We hope to avoid seeing others look at us through eyes of disdain or pity. One of the reasons that we so seldom stop to review our past failures, I believe, is that we do so, uh, is is that we don't want to experience it. We don't want to live through that pain once again. But if all failure is painful, spiritual failure carries with it a pain immensely greater than all other kinds of failure. I think it's no happenstance at all that all four gospel writers record Peter's weeping on this occasion. As the cock crows a second time, Jesus himself turns, casts his gaze on Peter, Luke 22:60. 60. At the very moment Peter was denying Jesus for the third time, we read, just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter, and Peter remembering what Christ had foretold about his denial, went outside and wept bitterly. Matthew and Luke use Greek words that tell us that his weeping was audible. There was no attempt to hide it. He couldn't. Mark tells us that there was a flood of tears. All three of the gospel writers use words that tell us he threw himself into his anguish without restraint or without any effort to hide his shame, and he continued in this state for some period of time. Well, you say, that's Peter, always over the top, overly emotional, but wait a minute. Do you really think for a moment that the other disciples experienced any less pain, wept, Fewer tears, were less wracked by shame than was Peter. Peter's spiritual failures were their own. They, like Peter, had mocked Mary when she adored their Christ. They, too, had contradicted Christ when he assured them that they would all desert him. They had been no more successful than Peter in the garden, when Jesus had said, stay here and pray for me? Or what of that most critical moment of time when the soldiers had come to Jesus and taken him away? Had any of them, had a single one of them, had the courage to stand up for Christ? I rather think that the closing words of Mark 14, and he broke down and wept, tell the story not only of Peter, but all the disciples. Certainly their guilt and their failure were no less and that of peter this is what i want to, want you to take note of while all failure of whatever kind is painful while all failure brings with it deep disappointment and shame and self-deprecation spiritual failure results in a pain so deep and so bitter that it leaves the strongest, the most saintly of men and women in a state of unparalleled brokenness. David, writing in the Psalms, speaks of feeling as though his bones were being crushed. His bed, he writes, was a swamp at night as he wept over his sin before God. Paul, the great saint in the New Testament, in Romans 7, speaks of that which he does and wishes he hadn't done, and that which he didn't do and should have done, and he cries out, "Oh." wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this kind of a life? Now the point of this observation is very simply this, just as surely as every child of God will inevitably experience spiritual failure, just so surely will every true child of God experience something of the bitterness and the brokenness that comes with realization that the one we have failed is none other than the one who loves us most, our creator and redeemer. The one who even now sits at the right hand of the Father and pleads on our behalf. The one before whom we will one day give account for our failures to serve him as we should have. Nor is this kind of pain the experience of just a few. This isn't something that only saints experience, it's difficult to imagine that any true, listen to me, it's difficult to imagine that any true follower of Christ could fail our Savior, whether through rebellion or simply through weakness or thoughtlessness, and not experience something of the bitter pain that inevitably accompanies it. Have you, Christian, have you never, following some spiritual failure, thought, how in the world could I let my Savior down after all he's done for me? Have you never thought that? Have you never shed so much as a single tear because you denied him by your silence or, worse yet, by something you said or did? Have you never lost even an hour's sleep because your conscience was reminding you that you had just spent another day walking according to the flesh rather than according to the Spirit? If so, if you have never experienced these things, then chances are very good that you are not, as you profess to be, one of his disciples at all but simply a religious tag-along whose loyalties really lie somewhere else. To love Christ, to be a true follower of his, is to guarantee that every spiritual failure, with every spiritual failure, there will come an accompanying anguish of soul, greater or lesser, a deep sadness, a longing to conform your life to his will for you. Sometimes that sadness may last for a moment, and sometimes longer. But as unpleasant as this may sound, and I know it does sound unpleasant, it comes with a positive, even a joyful assurance. Every time, every time some spiritual failure produces this deep sadness in our hearts, it gives evidence to the fact that God's Spirit is alive and active within us, causing us to love what our Lord loves and hate what He hates. It is a guarantee of one sort or another that He is faithfully and effectively doing His good work of conforming us to the likeness of His Son, day by day, step by step, even in and through our spiritual failures. Praise God. So then the pain we experience as a result of spiritual failure becomes a blessing and an assurance that Christ is actively applying his redemptive purpose to our lives. Now this all brings us to a third and final observation about spiritual failure, which is this. God delights in using our spiritual failures to teach us vitally important lessons for the Christian life. Think of all the lessons of Scripture that are given to us in the aftermath of some human failure. Or think of the lessons God has been teaching you, the lessons He's been teaching you in recent days. How many of those lessons were given on the occasion of some spiritual failure? There are those, I believe, who never think to look for God in their failures. How sad. They simply wish to get up and get on with next things but I believe these folks are greatly mistaken and greatly to be pitied because God is never so present and never so powerfully active in the lives of his children as when they stumble and fall someone has observed that the Christian life is a great deal like learning to ski I can't vouch for this personally I've never learned to ski My first trip down the hill I ran into a tree and I said that's it I'm not doing that again But I think there's truth to this observation. The Christian life is a great deal like learning to ski because if you're not falling down, you're not learning. If you're not falling down, you're not learning. That's not to say that we should seek failure as a way of learning spiritual truth. But it is to say that when we do fail, we should stop and ask what lessons or lesson in particular God may wish to teach us through that failure. Too many of us see these moments only in terms of a quick confession, fast forgiveness, and we're restored to fellowship and move on. Get on with it. What we fail to reckon with is God's pattern repeated over and over, over and over again in Scripture and in the lives of His people over the ages. A pattern of using these critical moments to teach us. These are the teachable moments of the Holy Spirit. Question, what kind of lessons is God likely to teach us in the moment, in the moments following spiritual failure. What kind of lessons, you say, is he likely to teach us in the moments following spiritual failure? For one thing, he may want to teach you how to avoid that the next time. That'd be a good lesson, wouldn't it? And often his lesson is in that pattern. It's in that mode. But if we're quiet and if we take time to listen at such times, we might be surprised what lessons he will teach us in the moments after our failures. If we look to our text for today, we can see some pretty good examples of that. Just quickly this morning, in the case of the the disciples' failure to appreciate Mary's anointing of Jesus, he taught them that our own spiritual growth comes not as a result of critiquing the spirituality of others, in this case Mary. They needed to look at their own hearts and lives and see what motivated them. He also taught them that there is no cause and no occupation and nothing in this world that has the value of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who stood in their midst, and yet they missed it. In the aftermath of their protestations concerning his prediction that they would all fall away, he taught them that no amount of good intentions on our part can guarantee future spiritual victory. Just as salvation is his work in our lives, so too is the work of maturity and growth and holiness. Third, in regard to their failure to keep watch with him in the Garden of Gethsemane, he taught them that even when the Spirit is willing, there is that within us which is not willing, the flesh, and it's not getting any better anytime soon. And finally, as a result of their efforts to advance God's kingdom, in purpose and plan by the use of physical force, he taught them that God's purpose is seldom if ever advanced by physical force, and should it be, God has plenty of physical force of his own. Notice, each of these important lessons in spiritual victory and growth came not as a result of the disciples asking for them, but because Christ was present in the moment to instruct them, to rebuke, to convict, and to speak into their hearts the truth that they needed to hear. Now, I believe it's equally true that Christ is present in the aftermath of our spiritual failures and that He wishes to teach these teachable, take those teachable moments and instruct you and me as well. What difference is this, He's not physically present today, is He? You can't expect Jesus to tap you on the shoulder and say, Let's talk about that, shall we? So what then do we do? We be silent before him. We listen. We invite him to teach us. We do as as James taught in his epistle. You know, if any man lacks of wisdom, let him ask of God. We turn to him and say, teach me, Master. Show me what you would have me learn in this moment. We don't just run on to the next thing and say, oh, I'm forgiven. Isn't that wonderful? We believe God has lessons to teach us, and we wait and invite his spirit to instruct us in these matters. And so we learn. And so we are more like him each day. Do you hear it? It's Pastor Jay's plane. It's circling. And it's a reminder that it's about time to land this thing, okay? So, you know, I just just got a little, a little glimpse of it there. I don't do summons. Jay does summons. I'm going to give you a couple takeaways. Is that okay? I want to speak to several different potential groups that might be here this morning. For that one are those ones who are experiencing the pain, the sorrow of spiritual failure. I want to speak to you for just a moment. You could start by giving thanks to God that his spirit is still striving with you. That there's this guarantee in your spirit that God has not left you, deserted you. Sometimes we wonder in the midst of our failure, could God possibly still love me? Could he possibly care? The ministry of his Holy Spirit, convicting, rebuking, wooing you is one of the most precious things that he has to give you in this moment. The most precious ways he can say to you, I still love you, I still care for you, I'm still calling you, I'm still working in your life. Thank God he's at work in your heart and life. Start there. Remember that he's guaranteeing this for you and then invite him to grant you strength, future victory. Second, for those who may be thinking, you know, my spiritual failures, Marty, I think they're just too great or too many. They probably fall outside of this category. Know this, our sin cannot diminish His grace. If you think your sin can diminish His grace, you're flattering yourself. The grace of Calvary is so great that Paul could write, where sin abounded, grace abounded more. I don't understand that, but I believe it, and I think there have been moments in my own life when I've experienced it. If we will confess our sin and turn from it, He will, as the text says, forgive us and cleanse us and cause us to be more and more conformed to the image of His Son. And for all of us, I think for all of us, the lessons of Mark 14 are are lessons that we need to understand. We're taught on the way to the cross where Jesus would offer himself as the perfect sacrifice, the perfect payment for our sin. Listen, at Calvary, Jesus did not purchase perfect life for his followers. Surprise. He did purchase a time in the future when he's going to come and glorify us and take us home. He did not die so you could live a perfect life for him in this existence. We know better. The word of God tells us if we say there's no sin in our lives, we're lying. We know better. He died that as the perfect sacrifice, we might take upon ourselves the righteousness of Jesus Christ and stand before the Father imperfect, faulty stumbling along the way, learning day by day how to be more and more like Jesus, but dressed in the righteousness of Christ until one day He comes, perfects us, and takes us home to be with Him forever. What a great day. Spirit of God, teach us the lessons that can be learned in failure, lessons of grace and hope, lessons of a sure salvation for today and for eternity. Amen.